If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From the Protestant Reformation to the Russian Revolution, history has been shaped by great transformations. But how exactly do these transformations occur? Well, that's a question addressed by the historian David Potter in his new book, Disruption, Why Things Change. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, David takes a look at the ingredients that drove the most radical changes in Western history. David, your new book is called Disruption, Why Things Change. Now, I wanted to start by asking you why you have chosen to describe this phenomenon as disruption as opposed to, say, revolution or transformation? And how would you define disruption? What I was thinking about when I decided to describe these changes as disruptions are changes that were so profound that you couldn't go back again from them, uh, that they altered a trajectory going forward. Revolution is a term that we can use to describe all manner of different things, Uh, some of them not all that radical, some of them not all that successful. Uh, But a disruption is a fundamental uh, change in a a social and intellectual order that sets something in a new direction, not always very positive, sometimes so, uh, but basically it's the depth of the change. Now, in your book, you you examine a a wide range of history-shaping disruptions from the rise of Christianity through the Protestant Reformation to the French and American revolutions and onto the eras of Marxism and Nazism. Obviously, these range across the centuries and the continents and are all very different in in their own way. But is there a common element that links all of them? What factors, conditions have to be in place for dramatic change like the ones you described to take place? First of all, there has to have been a fundamental loss of faith in central institutions, uh, that what has been working has become completely dysfunctional. Secondly, uh, it is the introduction of a series of ideas from well outside the mainstream uh, that are driving the political movements forward. Um, And if we put those two together, uh, we're in a position to have a really profoundly disruptive change. Now, the first example of disruption that you analyse in the book is arguably one of the most consequential, and that is the rise of Christianity. You point out that 
its transition from a relatively successful minority cult into a world religion was, to a great extent, accidental. I wonder, could you elaborate on that a little bit, please? In what way was it accidental? Well, if you had met, I think, virtually any Christian leader in 300 and said, oh, do you suppose that the emperor is going to become a Christian 20 years from now? They would have looked at you as if you were mad. Christianity establishes itself on the fringe because it rejects most of the sort of basic tenets of society, uh, which are basically very top-down, wealth makes right, uh, the basic way that ancient cities work. Then all of a sudden, you have a usurper, Constantine, who's looking to find a new justification uh, for his regime. And he goes to the group which is as far from the center of the political order as he can possibly find. The last great persecution of the church was inaugurated in uh, 303, and he would have watched it happen as a junior officer in the imperial court. Now, uh, in 312, facing a major military campaign, he believes, like all Roman emperors at this time, that he should have divine a divinity guide him forward, and what divinity could be better than the divinity who was completely rejected uh, by everybody else in the imperial regime? And I don't think he really knew very much about Christianity uh, in 312 when he decided to become a Christian. He memorably writes uh, that he was searching for a way to become a better person. And he met that God who lives in the watchtower of heaven, uh, who showed him a way forward. A dozen years after uh, his conversion, uh, Constantine is still quite capable of you know, showing respect for the traditional gods. And uh, he, his skill was to integrate Christianity into the center of the imperial intellectual system uh, without creating an extraordinary backlash. And what about the rise of Islam? How did that differ from the rise of Christianity? Uh, there are some major differences, of course, that Christianity had been on the fringes of ancient society for 300 years before Constantine took it up, uh, whereas Islam becomes the ideological core of a new world state within 50 years of the death of Muhammad. But... When we look at the world in which Muhammad was working, it was one in which old certainties were disappearing. He was trying to show his followers, his believers, a way to a better life and to salvation, which is, of course, a very similar message to that of Jesus. Uh, and Muhammad, of course, saw Jesus of Nazareth and Moses as earlier prophets of the same divinity. What is a bit different, however, uh, is that the Arab movement emerges on the fringe of two very well-established world powers, the Roman and Persian empires. But what has happened is that they'd been at war with each other for 20 years, and that was coming at the end of a period of massive dislocation as a result of the arrival of a pandemic, uh, the arrival of bubonic plague, which had undermined the economies of both powers. They couldn't afford the wars they waged against each other. Uh, so by 628, uh, essentially the two great powers in the world had uh, engaged in a double knockout. And 
the victors, uh, the Roman Emperor Heraclius, was doing everything he could possibly do to alienate uh, the part of the empire that he was reintegrating under Roman control. So that there was an absolute failure uh, of ideological messaging uh, from the old central powers, uh, which meant that people were quite willing to look for an alternative as it was coming out of the Arabian desert. Is complacency a common thread in all um, societies and civilizations that, that are overturned by incidents of disruption? Do the leaders simply not see it coming? That's absolutely the case. Uh, they get a sense that it's not that bad. You know, a few little tweaks here and there, uh, and you know, we'll all make it right again. That was certainly what Heraclius thought. We can see this in the reaction of the popes and the Holy Roman Emperor uh, to what goes on in Germany after uh, 1517. Uh, we can uh, certainly see this as the case in Russia uh, in 1917 and in the previous decade, uh, where Tsar Nicholas hadn't recognized that he needed to make really fundamental changes if things were going to work. Uh, and notoriously, of course, Hindenburg thought that Hitler was somebody he could control quite handily. Are there examples of civilizations that have survived and thrived without dramatic change? If so, how have they managed it? The great difficulty that we can see, of course, in thinking about absence of dramatic changes. What do we mean by length of time? How long do these civilizations uh, carry on? Uh, and I think it is fair to say that no civilization has proceeded without having a major course change uh, at some point in its history, whether it be in China, where again, uh, the arrival of the West uh, upset fundamentally a balance of power in the course of the 19th century that was thousands of years old. And of course, when we uh, look uh, at European history, it is shaped by a series of fundamentally dramatic uh, changes, whether it be the rise of Christianity or uh, the Protestant Reformation uh, or the emergence of a series of ideas to overthrow absolute monarchy or the Industrial Revolution. Uh, what matters is that you can readjust in a positive way uh, to a radical change. So the skill is in the way that you accommodate the change. Change is going to happen, but the most successful societies accommodate it without too radical change. Is that the key? That's exactly right. And uh, what I try to show in my book is what can enable you to move forward with a radical change in a successful way and uh, what can result in a total disaster uh, if you can't adjust to it. I mean, one thing that uh, is been, has been true uh, since the 15th century is that European society has been shaped in part by its ability to adjust to technological change, whether it's the printing press, the Industrial Revolution, uh, or now the world of high tech. Now, you write in your introduction that disruption often ends in blood and chaos when its leaders fail to grasp that radicalism unrestrained by realism is inherently self-destructive. So are you arguing that all change should be tempered by pragmatism? 
I am arguing that uh, pragmatism is absolutely crucial. And it can be very, very difficult. I mean, sometimes the most radical thing you can try to do is to reestablish a center uh, that enables people to come together and have uh, an actual conversation and to, and to work together. I mean, the French Revolution, I think, is a tremendously good example of this, how there was a sort of central core of agreement uh, by the end of 1792 that probably a constitutional monarchy could be something you could work out, that you wouldn't change things all that much. You'd still have a king. Then, of course, uh, thanks to the stupidity of the king in large uh, measure, what you do is you destroy the political center and leave the ground open for an extremely radical group, uh, surrounded by uh, you know, Robespierre and his uh, and his colleagues, uh, and so uh, also uh, in Russia in 1917, uh, where you had a very badly managed first revolution after the abdication of the Tsar, uh, which opened up space. Uh, for Lenin, who hadn't even lived in Russia for more than a decade, uh, to come back and suddenly dominate the political scene. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Uh, but if you had a czar who wasn't a complete idiot like Nicholas II, uh, you would not have had the Russian Revolution. about the American Revolution? Would you argue that was a case where pragmatism did, to an extent, prevail? It certainly did prevail in the American Revolution. Uh, what we see is that the system of government, so-called, which had come into existence for the rebellion against the Britain, uh, the loose alliance of the 13 colonies, was completely incapable of governing anything. Among the things that the uh, Congress, Continental Congress had done, uh, notoriously, was to cheat its own army at the end of the war, uh, really not paying the soldiers of their officers what they'd been promised. Uh, and so what emerges is a group of people who see that this has to change, uh, that there are demands to have a central government, which when you, of course, have a revolutionary movement which existed because they didn't like central government, uh, is in itself a radical move. Uh, but the majority of people in the Continental Convention, in the Constitutional Convention, had some contact with the Continental Army. Uh, these were people who knew each other. They knew how to work with each other. It mattered that George Washington was sitting at the uh, head of the room. I mean, Washington wasn't giving you know, intellectual direction to this movement. It came from younger people, you know, Madison and Hamilton and uh, people like that. But Washington was able to create an environment where they could shape a viable constitutional document. Uh, now, notoriously, of course, uh, there was also a huge compromise. That there was a recognition that the if a new country was to come into existence, it was going to have to allow slavery. To this day, we cannot know what each member of the Constitutional Convention meant. Um, there were people, clearly, and the second president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, was one of them, uh, who certainly did not believe that all people were created equal. Um, and there were people who were already violently opposed to slavery. 
I think that there was some hope that slavery would just disappear, uh, but that did not prove to be the case. Now, I want to return to uh, the issue of, of, of technology. I mean, as you alluded to earlier, the, the Protestant Reformation was, t- to a large extent, fired by technology and the rise of the printing press. How much have te- technological advances, to, to what extent have they played a role in history-shaping disruptions over the centuries? They've played a really significant role in them because what you have... What we tend to see is that the central institutions uh, lose track of the possibilities of new technology. I mean, the the king of France really had no idea uh, in the 1780s of the potential power of the press. Um, The left wing uh, in French politics really dominated the printing, the printing press, the, the spreading of information, it moved everything far more radically uh, than anybody in the French court could have expected it to do. Again, uh, Lenin understood this absolutely, uh, and as fast as he could, uh, he destroyed uh, opposition press so that only one message would be coming out. Hitler uh, also was somebody who had an interest, a real interest in making full use of available technology. I mean, this is the first German politician uh, who went on a tour by airplane all around Germany uh, from rally to rally to rally. Now, given that technology is changing faster than ever, should we expect disruptions to occur more often than ever before? I think that we really should be aware of that possibility. And I hope that one of the things that people can take away from my book, actually, is a sense of how we can use the past to think about the present. Uh, Because things are moving so much more rapidly, having an idea of what the potential outcomes are going to be uh, is, I think, very important uh, for us. We don't have the 50 years um, to watch a change unfold that you would have had had in the 16th century, and they were the decade that you would have uh, in the 18th century. Um, it's, a, it's a lot more rapid. Now, given we live in the era of, of climate change, I, mean, I wanted to ask you about the role that uh, ecolog- ecological disasters have played in disruption. I mean, is this, have they played a, a, a significant role? And, and if so, should that give us pause for thought now, given what's going on in the environment at the moment? I think we should be very concerned about this. An ecological disaster uh, can readily undermine uh, any faith in government. Uh, The Roman Empire in the third century uh, was partially shaped by the arrival of a smallpox epidemic. When you're watching people die all around you and you can't understand what is happening, you can't understand why this is occurring, it does undermine your faith in institutions, the arrival of the bubonic plague, again, in a world which had no capacity uh, for any kind of medical treatment, was devastating. I mean, it's an interesting fact that the Black Death didn't have the same effect uh, in Europe of directly undermining institutions. On the other hand, the re-emergence of society and the uh, transformations economically of society in the wake of the Black Death uh, do underlie uh, the changes that we see in the Protestant Reformation. Um, So 
Uh, when we uh, look at a weather report in the United States today and look at what's happening in the western part of the country, we're seeing that pe the way that people live is being torn apart uh, by forces that are completely outside of their own control. How important is a charismatic leader to disruption? And I'm thinking here most particularly of Adolf Hitler and Lenin, both of whom, as you mentioned, you discussed in the book. And has the influence of the charismatic leader been supercharged by the rise of the, the media? And on the flip side, could you say that, say, a more capable leader than, say, Tsar Nicholas II, could, could he or she have headed off what happened in Russia in the early 20th century? Absolutely. Um, the, you, know, you need a leader uh, for this kind of disruptive change who can truly inspire people and make them believe in the new message that you're putting out. Uh, but if you had a czar who wasn't a complete idiot like Nicholas II, uh, you would not have had the Russian Revolution. In 1905, it was clear as a result of the loss of the war to Japan that radical change of a different sort, progressive change, the creation of a more modern political system, the modernization of the military uh, were all going to be crucial. In 1914, the Russian general staff knew that it did not have enough shells to go to war, uh, that it, the progressive members of the Tsar's cabinet knew that any kind of war would be disastrous. And there is Tsar Nicholas in July of 1914 uh, pushing Russia into war. If that hadn't happened, there wouldn't have been a Russian revolution, uh, much less um, the rise of Hitler or anything else. Would you say that we're in some ways more suspicious of change than we were in the past? I, I, I guess there was, there was this idea that change meant progress, that we were in some way heading towards the end of history, a, a time of greater freedom and equality. I mean, has that kind of idea, do you think, been exploded by the events of the past few decades? I'm thinking of the war on terror and the, the emergence of climate change and the financial crash of 2008. I think that that has been a large change because what we can see is that populist movements are looking to a better past as a way of creating a better future. Now, the past that they're looking at is largely the result of a series of fantasies. I mean, certainly uh, in the United States, uh, you can see the sort of anti-immigrant, um, anti-science, uh, conspiracy theorist is really sort of denying uh, the reality of the world around it. When we look again to the populist movements uh, in Europe, uh, you can see the same thing. Oh, it's immigrants who are taking our jobs away. I mean, this is not actually true. I mean, the forces that are driving economic change um, and the stagnation that people in the middle class are feeling are the results of government policies, but a very different sort of government policy, uh, which has enabled monopolistic uh, capitalism to exert an excessive amount of uh, control over government policies. Your book begins by asking, how do things change? And you argue also that this is a question we need to consider with some urgency in the, in the early 21st century. Why is that? 
Well, I think that we can see from everything from the progress of the Trump administration in the United States. I mean, granted, more people voted against Donald Trump than have ever voted against somebody in an American election. Uh, but there were also a large number of people who still believe that this election was stolen. When we look at uh, Viktor Orban's rise, uh, the rise of uh, Alternative for Deutschland, of Marine Le Pen in France, that major movements have been driven by falsehoods. And at that point, we need to step back and say, what are we, what are we really looking at at this point? And finally, David, of all the examples of disruption you cover in your book, which would you say is the most remarkable? I think the most remarkable was really the Protestant Reformation, uh, because that started with the smallest catalyst uh, in a tiny corner of Germany uh, with an angry intellectual uh, who was just happened to be supported uh, by a relatively mid-grade German princeling. Uh, but the sudden spread of these new ideas, breaking up the authority of the Catholic Church, which had endured for you know close to a thousand years by that point, uh, the ability to inspire new movements across Europe to change a paradigm uh, of thought, uh, to open up space for science, uh, for a whole new set of ideas. You would not have had uh, the... Uh, development of uh, constitutional thought uh, that brings us our next disruption if it hadn't been a consequence uh, of the Protestant Reformation. That was David Potter. Disruption, Why Things Change is published today by Oxford University Press. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. On Friday, Dan Jones will be speaking about the surprisingly modern Middle Ages. Music